We're going to continue this evening to, um, in preparation for studying Daniel chapter 7 through 12, uh, we're going to continue this evening to talk about the various views, and in particular the view of dispensationalism, which is so prevalent in our day. I want to remind you again that the majority of evangelical churches in the United States are dispensational in their teaching concerning prophecy and end times, and in general, they're, they're dispensational in their theology. And so this is not a side issue. This is not something that we never run into. What I found out in the last few weeks is that at least for the people in this room, uh, there's not been a lot of detailed teaching about dispensationalism in the past, which I didn't you know, necessarily realize that, but I have found that out in the last few weeks. Some of the things we'll be talking about tonight, I want to uh, say this to you as well, some of the things that we'll be talking about tonight are very helpful in just understanding how the New Testament and the Old Testament connect together, and even if we don't even want to be thinking about prophecy, and even if we don't want to be thinking about dispensationalism or other views, uh, prophetic views, uh, it, it, I believe it will be very helpful uh, to us all uh, to be reminded of uh, some of the the, the ways that the New Testament, the Old Testament, the Old Testament people of God and their history, how it relates to us as Christian people today. And so we can look at this uh, teaching uh, uh, in its own right, uh, separated from uh, maybe the controversy of, of prophetic uh, schemes and things that we hear uh, floating around us in the world, in the theological world today. And so... Um, let me pick up where we were last week. I'm not going to review very much. Last week, I was making the observation that in dispensationalism, uh, and I only put three periods up here. There are seven dispensations. But this period right here is the most significant Old Testament period because it goes from the book of Exodus, when the children of Israel are coming out of Egypt, all the way to the cross. And then, of course, this period is the, the age we live in now, the church age, and then the kingdom to follow uh, is um, in the dispensational scheme is yet in the future. And so that uh, lies ahead uh, in the uh, dispensational view. And so I just put the three up there because this is, these are the significant time periods in history. It's this period and this period as far as from our perspective today. The Old Testament period from Exodus to the end of the Old Testament. And then our New Testament and right up to here where we are tonight. Uh, in the history of the world. Now, the point that we were making last time at the close of our uh, t uh, considerations was, was we were talking about how that there has only been one method of salvation for all time, for all people, that people have always been saved because the Holy Spirit worked in their heart and brought them to faith in Christ. And so we were showing that from the New Testament and from the Old Testament Last week, of course, in dispensationalism, how were people saved during this period of time? They were saved by keeping the law. They were saved by works. And then this is a period here where people are saved by believing the gospel. And so this era has ended and people are no longer saved that way. We're in a new age now. The period of law has passed and now we're under grace. That's the dispensationalist view. And so I was trying to, to uh, refute that idea and promote to you from the Scriptures the, 
what I believe is the truth of the Bible, which is that people have always been saved from Adam to the last person that ever will be saved by faith in Christ, by faith in the Messiah. And we looked at a number of verses last week, and I'm not going to go back through those again. But let me pick up at the next spot that we were that I was uh, that I was at when we stopped, and that is to remind you of the words in Habakkuk. And I'm not going to turn to read this verse. I'm just going to say it to you. Habakkuk two four, which says that the righteous shall live by faith. Now, if you would turn with me to Romans 1.17, I want you to see that that Old Testament prophetic word, that Old Testament teaching, Paul uses as the basis of explaining the gospel. Now, last week we looked at Genesis, um, back in the book of Genesis, verses chapter 15, verse 6, and saw how Paul use that in Romans 4 to explain our salvation. Now we have a, a, a different Old Testament text, Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. And we see it in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And there he's quoting from Habakkuk 2.4. And so as Paul begins to talk about the gospel, he says that he is saying that the gospel has always been this, that men have always been made righteous by believing and never by working. And he's going to talk about that a lot in this chapter and and throughout this book, and we're not going to take time to look at it this evening. Galatians chapter 3, Paul again quotes this verse, Galatians 3, 11. says this, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for, and now he's quoting Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous shall live by faith. And so he's making the statement that it should be obvious to us that people are not saved by works, that they're saved by faith. Well, why should it be obvious? Well, it should be obvious because Habakkuk many centuries ago told us that. He said many centuries ago that the righteous one will live by believing. He will live on the basis of faith. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm not going to read this verse. Hebrews chapter 10, 38 and 39, as he's talking to the church there uh, in um, uh, as the writer of Hebrews is talking to the people there, he again quotes this verse from Habakkuk 2.4 in describing their salvation. Now, I want you to turn back with me to John's Gospel in John chapter 3. I want you to notice something that you, if you, if you know this already, then I, I hope it's something that's always been interesting to you. And if you haven't noticed it before, then I hope that this will uh, that this will get your attention. We're very familiar with verses 3 and 5. Let's read those two verses. Now remember, he's talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He's considered to be one of the chief rabbis and teachers in Israel. He's an authority figure in the Jewish religion of that day. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. 
And so what Christ is saying there is, is that it is not possible for you to see the kingdom of heaven, to grasp it, to understand it, unless you have first been born again. Then verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we can't see the kingdom of heaven unless we're first born again. We can't enter into the kingdom of heaven unless we are first born again. Now, the very interesting statement that I want to draw your attention to is verses 9 and 10. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Now, I want you to think about the implications of that statement for just a moment. He is looking at the, one of the principal teachers of, the, of religion in Israel. And he says to him, after saying, you must be born again. And then Nicodemus says, well, I don't understand how this can be. And then his, his response to him is, can you be the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? What is the implication of that? What should a Jewish person who understood the scriptures, who knew the word of God, who was a faithful uh, person, what should they have understood already? That you had to be born again. That that was something that's not a new thing, that Christ is teaching some new teaching. Mm -hmm. Jesus is talking to him. He hadn't been crucified yet. Right, or in the future, or soon. Right, exactly. That's not what he said. And it's always been a very interesting statement to me because we think about, I, I grew up, as I've told you before, in the dispensational setting. I always thought that being born again was a New Testament phenomenon that started here going forward in time. Uh, but it's clear that Christ is saying to Nicodemus, you're a Jewish teacher, and you should have been teaching this all the time. You should have known this. You should have understood this from the Old Testament scriptures. Now look over at Galatians 3.16. Just want to point out to you just very quickly a few verses that point us back to Old Testament people and times. Galatians, Galatians 3.16. Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, just pause for a second. You know, if you go back to Genesis, the promises that were made by God to Abraham were to you and your seed, you and your offspring. And so that's what he's referring to when he says the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And then Paul says this, it does not say and to offsprings referring to many, that is, to all the people that would be born from Abraham's line of people, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. And so what uh, Paul is saying here is when God was speaking to Abraham and making covenant promises to him, entering into covenant with him, that what he was doing is he was entering in covenant with Abraham that would be fulfilled 
in the Christ, in the Messiah. And that what Abraham was promised is not separate in any way from the Christ or separated from Jesus and what he will do when he comes into the world. But instead, it is actually the very heart of the covenant and the promise that was given to Abraham. Look at John 8, 56, following on that thought. John 8, 56. Christ is speaking with the Jews, and he's having uh, somewhat of a debate with them. And this is what he says in verse 56. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the, the, the statement that Christ makes to the Jews is, Abraham himself saw my day, and he rejoiced in what he saw when he saw me the Messiah, the Christ. That was what Abraham saw and perceived and understood when God was dealing with him. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's a reference here in chapter 10 to the children of Israel. You'll notice in verse 1 that it talks about the cloud. They were under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. And then I want you to draw your attention down uh, to verse 4. So the people that we're talking about is Israel leaving Egypt, going out into the wilderness, and all their wilderness warning, uh, wanderings. And this is what verse 4 says. And they drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And so who was it that was in the, the, and if we had time to go back and look at the Old Testament scriptures, it's very interesting to see this actually unfold uh, in the book of Exodus. But the cloud by, the cloud by day and the fiery pillar by night was, is actually the Lord Jesus Christ there with the people as they come out of Egypt. And the angel of the Lord that appears on several occasions as that is all unfolding is our Lord Jesus Christ on the scene there with his people coming out of Egypt. And that's what is being recognized here by Paul as he says that, 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 that the uh, rock that was following them was Christ himself. Do you remember the water of the rock? It was connected with our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's an a interesting thing to talk about. We don't have time to get into the details this morning. Look over at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2. Again, in Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews is giving us warnings to God's people. Uh, he's giving warnings to us, and he's basing it on Israel's experience in the wilderness. But I want to draw your attention to a, a particular statement in uh, Hebrews 4, 2. He's talking about the, 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 the children of Israel in the wilderness, and he says this. For good news came to us, that is us Christians... Just as it did to them, that is, in the wilderness, Israel. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And so 
Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews, I say Paul, but Paul didn't, we don't know if Paul wrote Hebrews or not. The writer of Hebrews is saying that the gospel, just like it came to us, it came to them. But what was the problem in the wilderness? They didn't believe the gospel when it was preached to them. Now, at that very same time, if you look over at Hebrews eleven twenty six, we're talking about those very same days, those very same people. We're talking about Moses, Hebrews eleven twenty six. This is speaking of Moses when it says he, it's Moses. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Why? Did Moses choose to identify himself with the people of God in their slavery, in their misery, instead of uh, identify himself with Pharaoh's house where he was, uh, where he was a, a, uh, a favorite son and had every privilege and all wealth and, and authority uh, there in Egypt? Why did he choose to identify with lowly Israel? A writer of Hebrews says it was because he considered the reproach of the Messiah to be greater riches than the riches of Egypt. It was because he believed in Christ. It was because he believed in the Messiah that he does the things that he does. And so at every point, when the New Testament is explaining the new covenant salvation that we have in Christ's church to us, the, the New Testament does it on the basis of the Old Testament scriptures. And how can that be? How can our new covenant, our present day church and the salvation that we experience as Christians, how can it be explained to us in terms of the Old Testament scriptures? Well, the answer is really uh, pretty straightforward to us. It's this, the salvation that the Old Testament teaches and preaches and proclaims is exactly the same, same salvation. It has always been salvation by faith and that faith in the Messiah. Do we have, before we leave that subject, do we have any questions about that? You finally got a question, Bill. You get a gold star today. Right. Well, it very well may be uh, if you ask uh, a person how they thought people in the Old Testament were saved, they may, may never have been actually taught about that. They may have never heard that part of dispensationalism, you know, explained and taught. I mean, it, it is clearly the doctrine that has been taught in the last, since 18, like mid-1800s. It, it is a new teaching in just the last hundred plus years, um, it, but it, that is definitely the scheme of doctrine that uh, has been used to 
to support in uh, among other things the views of prophecy and things that we're going we're which is really where we started down this path from but it may very well may, may be that they've never thought about that or never heard that taught and and so they may just never have heard that teaching and so it's hard to answer your question why on a given situation but they, they very well may not be it's just like you have the very same experience if you talk oftentimes with uh, roman catholics they often do not know. Oftentimes we know much, much, much more, and I don't know much, but we know much more about uh, Catholic doctrine than the people that we talk to. That is normally the case when we, if you get into any serious discussion with people who are Roman Catholic as well. Very same thing. They know general ideas, but they really don't know what the formal positions and and more uh, detailed teachings of the church is that we see that a lot. What we want is for every Christian to know their Bible, but it's not true uh, across Christendom. And, and I think that's a very fair statement to make. That, that's, that's what I am proposing is the case. It's exactly that. Well, we're going to get into that just a little bit in, in our next uh, topic that I'm going to take up right now as soon as we you know, don't have questions. I mean, I'm not trying to r rush through questions. But, but because it comes back to the relationship of Israel and the church. And so uh, this, this is our next subject. And do we have any other questions before we move to the next topic? Anything at all? I think that they did, that it's clear from Isaiah and other prophets, and from Daniel. We're going to see it in Daniel. We're going to see it in Isaiah. But I also think that just like we have a lot of poor understanding and doctrine today in the Christian church, that in the Jewish world at the time that Jesus actually comes into the world, that, that, that their idea of Messiah had become largely politicized because of the fact that they were enslaved to Rome. And, I mean, they, they didn't govern themselves. They were under somebody else's thumb politically and militarily and economically and culturally. 
Uh, and so I think that their um, focus was misguided at the time of Christ, that they had this idea Messiah was going to come and immediately deliver them from Rome. That was the, what they were hoping Messiah would come on the scene and, and do. And they weren't as concerned that Messiah would come on the scene to save them from their sins, but they didn't know that. And we're going to see that all the way back in Daniel, uh, in his prophecy, and uh, in Isaiah, and even before that. Because if you, uh, if you remember in Genesis 3.15, the very first thing that God speaks after the fall is he preaches the gospel there in the garden. And so it's been there for men to understand uh, from the beginning of history. Now, the reason I put this up on the board tonight was, to, was for our next subject, which is in dispensationalism, this period is about Israel, this period is about the church, and this period is about Israel. And this gets a little bit into the comment you made about categories of people and being treated different ways. In dispensationalism, you may have heard this statement that the Bible never confuses Israel and the church. Have you ever heard that? Anybody? Nobody ever heard that statement? I've heard that a hundred. <laughs> yeah, well, I've heard that said many, many times. It's a very common thing when people are teaching about dispensationalism. The Bible never confuses it. And when the Bible says Israel... It never means the church. And if it says church, it never means Israel. And so the prophetic view of Daniel, when we get into Daniel, and this is one of the reasons we're talking about dispensationalism, they believe, dispensationalists, that Daniel is fulfilled in either this period of time or in this period of time, and it has nothing to say about this period of time at all. And when you come to the book of Revelation, it doesn't have anything to do. The first three chapters, which are what? Letters to the churches, have to do with churches. But then at, starting in Revelation chapter 4, everything that is in the rest of the book of Revelation has to do with this period of time and is focused on Israel. And so the idea is that, uh, in dispensational, is that when Christ came into the world, Israel rejected their Messiah. And because they rejected the Messiah, God turned from Israel, stopped his program that he had from Israel, because what was supposed to happen was it was supposed to be, it was supposed to be from here and immediately pick up there, and there wasn't supposed to be anything in between. God never intended for this whole period to ever happen. It wasn't supposed to happen. It wasn't God's intention. His intention was for the Messiah to come and for uh, his people to go directly from this period to uh, the period of the kingdom. But what happens when Jesus comes? Israel doesn't receive their Messiah. They don't recognize their Messiah. They don't accept their Messiah. And so what God does is God completely suspends his program, which he will pick up again when the church period ends, and he'll go back to Israel. So in the kingdom, all the Old Testament things are going to come back into place. Have you ever heard people say there will be a rebuilt temple, that uh, Christ uh, will sit on David's throne in Jerusalem, 
and there'll be animal sacrifices again uh, in Jerusalem, those kind of things. That happens in this period when God reinitiates his kingdom plan that he has suspended at this point in time. And so we're living in an age right now that is often called the great parenthesis. By dispensationalists. It was, a, it was a period of time that the Old Testament prophets never saw. And they didn't talk about it. And it, uh, it, it is something that God did because he interrupts his plan. He's going to pick it up again um, at the end of the church period of time. Did I spell that right? Parenthesis. Okay. It's close. I think it's right. And so what I want to talk about in the next few minutes is, and we only have just a few minutes, is I want to talk about the, the sharp distinction between Israel and the church. And I want to propose to you that that is not what we see in the Scriptures. We don't see the kingdom be suspended. And this has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of Christ that's a temporary thing. This is the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God that the Old Testament is about and was God's plan for history. Now, if you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 2, I want to challenge the idea, the premise, that the Israel and the church are separate, that they don't have anything to do with each other, that the Scriptures never, uh, the scriptures never confuse uh, those two groups of people. Romans chapter 2, and I want you to look at verses 28 and 29. It says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outward, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, what Paul is saying here is a number of, of things. Let's look at a, a, a little bit of the details of what he's saying in these two verses. First of all, he says that being a true Jew is not an outward physical thing. That that is not what makes a person be uh, a true Jew. Then he says that true circumcision is not an outward physical thing. Do you see that uh, in verse 28? For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. A true Jew, being a true Jew, is an inward thing. It is a, a matter of the heart. True circumcision is a matter of the heart. You'll notice in the next verse, verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. And so whether we're a circumcised person or not a circumcised person in spiritual reality uh, it is a matter of our internal person. It is not about our body. It's not about uh, our descendancy uh, from what kind of tribe or, or uh, culture or uh, people we are descended from. Now, how is a heart circumcised? Well, our verse tells us in verse 29, it is by the Spirit. And so how does a heart become a circumcised heart? It becomes circumcised by the Holy Spirit. Is it possible for any person to circumcise 
a heart, a soul, an internal spirit. Can any person do that? It has to be done by the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is telling us here. Note, note the additional statement that it is not by the letter. Now, in the New Testament, the letter always refers back to, uh, to the Old Testament and to the law. It's not by the law. It's not by works. It's not by human action that our hearts are circumcised. Is being Jew, a Jew or a Gentile, according to the flesh, even relevant to whether or not our heart is circumcised? What Paul is saying is that it is not even relevant. Now note the last sentence. The person that is a true Jew, truly circumcised, is the person that God recognizes as such. You see that at the end of verse 29? His praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, it is not who people look at and say, you're a Jew, you're not a Jew, you're one of God's people, you're not one of God's people. That's not what matters. It is God that looks at the hearts of men he knows who is circumcised in heart, and he knows who the true Jews are. Now, the first interesting issue this raises is, why is Paul calling these Gentile Christians true Jews? Is that wrong for Paul to say, if you are circumcised in your heart, if you've been born again, you are a true Jew. Is that wrong language? Because this doesn't have anything to do with that. They're completely separated from each other. Does it, you see the issue that immediately comes up. Now, I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy, and we'll close with this tonight. If you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy, just a couple of verses about circumcision, then we'll close. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, because the second question it raises is, is being circumcised a heart of heart, is this a New Testament thing? Is this something that started here that wasn't true before? When Paul is talking in a New Testament context, is he giving us a new idea? Or is this something that goes back uh, to the Old Testament and to God's people uh, from all ages? Look at uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10 and verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you you today for your good. Now let's skip down uh, a few verses um, to verse 16. You see what God is commanding them. He's commanding them to fear Him, to obey Him. But notice for what it says in verse 16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. And so God is instructing Israel here in the Old Covenant. He's instructing them to circumcise their hearts. That the true circumcision is not what they're doing as they circumcise their, their uh, children as they're born and identifying them with Israel in that way. That's not the circumcision that God is concerned about. God wants them to be circumcised in their heart. Turn over to chapter 30, still in Deuteronomy, chapter 30 and verse 6.
because this is very interesting. This is the kind of thing we'd expect to read in the New Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Let's stop for just a moment. When we're reading in Romans 2, who circumcises the heart? By the Holy Spirit, right? That's who does heart circumcision. Well, here God is saying very same thing. The Lord your God, and we could add by the Holy Spirit, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul that you may live. Now, when you hear the word all of your heart and all of your soul, does that remind you of any New Testament gospel verses? It certainly does. And so this is not a new thing that is something that is happening that Paul is bringing about as a New Testament doctrine. This is something new in the world. This has always been the case for God's people. How were people saved? How were they born again in the Old, in the Old Testament? It was because the Holy Spirit circumcised their heart and brought them to faith in the Messiah. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, just very quickly a few verses and then we'll be done. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. Note in verse 3 it says, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Look at verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And so what God is commanding him to do is not circumcise themselves in the flesh, but to circumcise themselves in the in the heart. Now I want you to turn over to the New Testament just quickly for a couple of verses. Acts 751. Acts 751. This is Stephen's speech. It's been going on this whole chapter. And notice what he says in verse 51. You Stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, let's pause for just a second. Stephen is speaking to Old Testament people or New Testament people? Stephen in his speech here in Acts. New, we're in the New Testament, right? So he's talking to New Testament people. He says to you, he's saying to, to New Testament people, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and your ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now notice what he says next. As your fathers did, so do you. And so this has been the case throughout the history of the world, that people have been uncircumcised in their heart. And when they were uncircumcised in heart, what were they really doing? They were resisting the Holy Spirit, that has always been the case. Uh, Philippians 3.3, 3, just quickly a couple of statements, and then we'll be done. Philippians 3.3. 3. 
Paul, speaking to Christians, says, We are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Colossians 2.11, over just a few pages. Colossians 2.11. Speaking about in Christ, in Him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so speaking to these Christian people, he says, you have been circumcised, but you've been circumcised with a circumcision not done by men with their hands. You have been circumcised by the Spirit of God uh, in believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then in chapter, in chapter 6, verse 15 here in Galatians. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And what is that new creation? It is the new birth. It is being born again. And then... Flipping back a few verses earlier to 328, chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so the distinction has never been between Jew and Gentile. Weren't there people that were believed in Jehovah and were converted, Gentile people, in the Old Testament days? There certainly were. We have a number of them recorded for us in the Old Testament scriptures. And so that's never been the issue, whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, whether you were of the nation of Israel or not. We're going to see uh, a fascinating uh, thing when we get to Ephesians chapter 2 uh, about this very same subject. There's a, a very explicit statement about who we are as Christians in Ephesians 2. I wish we had time to do that tonight. We'll do that. I'll probably do that on Wednesday night of this week and try to finish this up on Wednesday. So next time we come to Daniel on Sunday night, which will be two weeks from now, uh, Lord willing, we will start looking at Daniel itself directly. And so we'll try to finish up with this introductory stuff on Wednesday of this week, God willing. Let's close with a word of prayer.